0: You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 27, The Troubled Teen Industry. It's a treatment that goes by many names. Scared Straight, Boot Camp, Encounter Group, Reform School, But what it is, is an ecosystem of what we call the troubled teen industry. It is a for-profit initiative by private individuals often using government funds in very many cases to quote-unquote assist youth in overcoming obstacles in their lives such as prior trauma, psychological disorders, substance abuse, and more. Here to talk more about their time in the troubled teen industry and their new podcast all about it are my guests, Meredith Yunusi and Miranda Sullivan. Welcome, ladies. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, and if you could please describe for me what constitutes the troubled teen industry.
1: The troubled teen industry is going to be a consolidated network. It's pretty complex of, like, boot camps therapeutic boarding schools, a lot of what we're going to call like teen rehabs. And the troubled teen industry, uh, mostly what we include when we talk about it are those abusive versions of the institutions. And it's a $2 billion a year industry here in the U.S. Um, And it really began in the 70s. And for your listeners specifically, it is you know, debatably cult spawned from the Church of Synanon, which started in the 50s in California.
0: Most of these institutions are private, but some of them appear to be state run. So how does that work?
1: When we talk about TTI, we're mostly talking about private for profit institutions. But it is going to expand to like mental institutions and substance abuse programs that are government run and funded and definitely funded either way. The SEED, which was arguably the first troubled teen program, which totally functioned on like the Synanon tactics and then eventually like spawned straight and kids. It actually started on a government grant in Florida in like the 1970s. So these are really strong ties.
0: So usually when you go see a therapist, they have a tradition of therapy that they follow. What is the basis of therapy that is employed in these groups or in these institutions?
1: You guys remember when AA started, it was focused very specifically towards alcoholics. And so in the 1940s, you have Chuck E. D, um, Chuck e. Diedrich, really, who uh, became like the Did biggest, you coolest. Huh?
2: D do That's his like moniker.
1: Well, yeah, so in the 70s, when they start making programs for teens, SEDU is named after him. So it's like the Charles E. Dietrich University. Um, But Uh, yeah, I actually
2: was reading up more more about this. There's a really great article from the LA Magazine, um, if anyone wants to look it up, um, by Hillel Aaron, called The Story of This Drug Rehab Turned Violent Cult. But yes, and that's kind of where... A lot of these programs came out of this philosophy, but you take it from there, Miranda.
1: Well, if we're plugging articles, then let's definitely add in there Maya Salovitz's um The Cult That Spawned Tough Love with Mother yeah. Jones. And so that'll go through the history of Sinanon through CDU and all of these. But as far as the tactics, they're initially AA based and then uh you know the game is their big thing. So that's what we like call attack therapy. These are encounter groups. So a <laughs> typical Encounter group, uh, you're going to pull me up in front of you You're gonna tell me, you know, Miranda, you're such a dirty, stupid fucking whore. And, you know, because your parents didn't love you because you aren't worth loving. Obviously, that's why you would suck any dick in here for like a hit of weed right now. You know, <laughs> and if seriously, this is exactly how it would go. And if you don't get serious and honest with yourself right now, you're going to die alone on the streets, raped like you deserve. And everybody would go one by one with their own variations of this until I broke down emotionally enough to accept this about myself. And these encounter groups, the game, uh, they really attracted people like Bridget Fonda and Natalie Woods, and they were actually broadcast on public radio at the time in California, and they could last as long as, like, literally 72 hours.
0: People who've listened to this show before will remember that the group that shall not be named is one that uses attack therapy to shame people on stage.
1: Well, yeah. Well, you know, the I the fun part is not only does the government fund seed right in 1971, but in 1973, they also wind up investigating seed and a lot of these other programs like Meredith mentioned, I think I think CD might have already been around at that point. Right. Um, And they find them to have tactics like North Korean brainwashing camps. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of like took a look out at the book, you know. So the crazy thing is, is that like um, the reason
2: why it's called Synanon is because this guy, um, Chucky e. D, that's my thing with him now. Basically. That's
1: what we should do. Um,
2: he started these seminars. So he was in like a community recovery program. Basically, he started. He went off on his own and started having these like, um, like seminar anonymous cinema seminars. So like sin, like an, Synanon, like seminar anonymous cinema se- seminars. So Synanon. And so, and and the funny thing is like, after he like really, you know, uh, he was getting popular, it started out in Los Angeles, you know, everybody, like cults are great for people out there. It seems to be like a breeding ground for that, for that kind of thing. So, but then the government started being like, uh, you know, doing much like they do today and be like, you know, these alcoholics who would get drunk off their ass and do something crazy you know, they get cited, they get in, thrown in front of a judge, and they would be like, well, you could go to jail for a year, or you could go to, to uh, Mr. Chucky e. D, and go to his synonym and and literally the government was sending, like, the ju- judges were sending these kids, or whoever they were, to him, and, you know, they'd become part of the cult, and become, you know, brainwashed by it, and that's, like, that that's the very beginnings of this whole entire industry.
0: So describe for me what kinds of kids get sent to these institutions, because it seems like, oh, only the worst kids, only the you know the most criminal-minded children get sent there. It doesn't really appear to be the case, though.
2: Uh, me and Miranda. <laughs> Miranda, and I, do, like, I did like. We did. I didn't touch a drug. I had maybe one sip of alcohol and I was a virgin. I had never the I did do some crazy things because I got into trouble with some bad kids. Um the one like probably the worst thing I ever did was I had my one best friend who was like my only friend <laughs> in middle school. I she convinced me and I let her uh to take my mom's keys, steal her car and Uh, I I at first was like, no, this is probably not a good idea. We're 12. We don't know how to drive. And she was like, oh, no, we did it like at my grandmother's. I've driven her car a million times. And I'm like, I was bullied and pressured into doing it. Um, Let her drive my mother's car. And she crashed my mother's car into someone else's car. I was mortified. I didn't know what to do. She was crying on the ground outside my home. I immediately just was like, "Well, I don't know how we get away with crashing my mother's car. I'm just going to go and tell her." Now, because I had you know troubles in the past, and I had been on medications and been institutionalized in um, you know before uh, in psych wards, and you know it was you know it was kind of um, the cops were called by my mother a few times. I was the one who was prosecuted and had to go get my fingerprints and had to be put on something that they called like youth probation, even though I never sat in the driver's seat and never like, all I did was give her the keys to my mother's car. And that was probably the worst thing I ever did. My mother was really, like, concerned about that. She was like, that was, I think, the worst thing I ever did before I got sent to the family pool. Like, I just had a host of emotional problems and emotional issues due to, like, some other kinds of traumas that happened when I was younger, Um, like my parents' divorce, things of that nature. So the kinds of kids that get sent here aren't just the kids who break into, you know— do something bad get they're high on drugs they're drug addicted they're alcoholics they're it's like it's it's um it's it's like a national problem that these parents who in my opinion this is not a generalized opinion uh, don't like really know how to raise children they shouldn't have had children in the first place i firmly believe that about my parents They can't handle a kid who has some issues, mental, emotional, you know, or kind of personality issues. You know, they don't get along with kids very well. I don't know. And they just, you know, end up not being able to handle that emotionally. They have their own mental health issues to work with, which is something my mother has always dealt with. And I didn't know till after. So it's like not just these hardcore kids that are getting drunk and getting arrested. It's regular kids that are just having a hard time being a kid getting sent to these programs there was a woman on the doctors doing a segment on the tti industry and she had sent her son to this wilderness camp um and she testified because the kid actually died at this wilderness boot camp she had sent him there because he lacked confidence he lacked confidence he's a, she, she testified on the, on CBS, on the doctor saying that he was a great kid. He always listened to me, did good in school, blah, blah, blah. He lacked confidence. This is the kind of emergency that we have that parents think that they can just, you know, send their kid to these, uh, these programs. I mean, her kid actually died because she wanted him to gain some confidence. I think If you want your kid to gain some confidence, maybe you should be responsible as a parent and give the kid some confidence yourself. So, you know, I don't think that like sending him to a military style wilderness camp where the dangers are so prevalent because they're not, a lot of these programs are not regulated. That, I I just don't think that that, that's not an option for me. That's not just me coming from a survivor's perspective. That's me as a person. So to answer your question, yes, like normal, otherwise normal kids are getting sent to these places quite often.
0: So we're talking about what, you know, what people used to say were goths or, you know, depressed kids or kids that just have a hard time fitting in.
1: And unfortunately, what we're also talking about is 12 year old kids with ADHD Or what we're seeing is like a high amount of adopted kids being like these parents then abdicate responsibility and send them to the program until they go to college. Or we're also looking at currently, there's this girl who all five or six of her siblings were sent to Agape, um, Circle of Hope, Refuge for Girls and a bunch of other programs. And she's mentally disabled. So her adoptive parents Uh, literally legally signed her over for life to this program so she's been there for 14 years now and without advocacy from the general community she will literally never leave my understanding
0: is that there's two ways that you end up in one of these types of places so either your parents put you there against your will or you get sent there as a result of a court order in both cases you have zero recourse legally
2: and you're a minor, so you can't. Ha- and you can't legally leave until you're 18. Um, and if you were to try to leave one of these places, much like the school Miranda and I went to, you would be brought back by the local police. Other, you know, and you were so isolated, you know. Anyway, where we were, we were very isolated. I think the town we were seven miles from the closest town, up a steep, steep mat- uh, mountain in the Catskills. And the the townspeople would be like, we know you're from that crazy, you know, school up there. They would just bring you back. But yeah, there was no there was no legal recourse unless you had an advocate, like someone who was willing, like another family member, maybe. I don't know. There is literally no recourse for these kids.
0: The goal of most of these places is either to keep your kid from dying by suicide or keep your kid off drugs or to keep your kid out of jail. How effective are these places at accomplishing those goals?
1: Well, there is no science to support that they're effective at all, but there is GAO reports, psychology reports, and things of that nature that have documented how not only ineffective, but permanently damaging behavioral modification is like on children.
2: I think Paul Morantz, right. Um, tried to do a study of this or something, I, I I have to, we have to cite the articles, but there really is no, um, you know, kind of study that says that it's effective at all. I think I was reading something the other day that said there was more kids that like, there were more kids that came out of it dying, you know, and going right back to drugs or going right back to their previous behavior than there were that actually like stayed sober or stayed out of trouble or just, you know were successful. I
1: mean, I
2: don't know the statistics. I would really have to um
1: look that up. Well, we don't have any statistics, right? So we don't have statistics on how many children have been in programs, have been harmed in programs, how many programs there are. And that's what the whole GAO with Congress in the U.S. in 2008 was about, they did an investigation for a year, and all these congressional testimonies are on the YouTubes, guys. Um, and then the GAO brought their report to Congress and questioned NATSAP, uh, which our school was a founding member of NATSAP, and they told Congress in the U.S. that we needed oversight regulations and just basic access to information, because we can just make up numbers and ideas about how it's working, but, like, we ha- we literally—there's no science, so, mm-hmm. I mean—
2: I mean, there was a guy, Well, like I said, Paul Morantz, um, he tried to do, he was a journalist. Um,
1: Paul Morantz is an attorney.
2: Paul Morantz, yeah, he's a journalist turned lawyer. And um, like, he tried to um, write about the group. I guess he sued them or something on behalf of these two, this couple. But then like, he, I think he was writing articles and like investigating these kinds of programs in the early, in the 70s. And the man like that, on went after him and like at one point there was like a snake in his mailbox that like, you know, he ended up in the hospital and it's like, you know, these, these guys are, I mean, there's a lot of money in this. There's, there's a lot of, um, you know, so it's, um, that's the kind of thing that we're up against.
0: To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash k-a-r-e-n-g-e-i-e-r. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.